0: Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa.
1: And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Today, we're going to dig deep into the Harrison family murders. Three members of the same family found dead at the same residence separated by
0: less than five years. What? Three dead within five years on separate occasions. That's right. Okay. All at the same house. Okay. That's a realtor's nightmare if I ever heard of one. (laughs) Try to sell that one after that happens.
1: It isn't until the third victim is found dead that police actually start to suspect that this is a little
0: bit more than mere coincidence. So I'm wondering why it didn't take two For them to suspect, or even the first one. Well, we're going to get into
1: that. There was a lot going on in Ontario at this time with the justice system and how cases were being handled. And so that largely led into the cases kind of falling through the cracks. Okay. Okay. These murders were orchestrated by Melissa Merritt and carried out by her partner, Chris Fator. Melissa is described as the girl next door, a doting mother and an animal lover. Very few knew that she had a domineering, vengeful side. The case would eventually lead to an overhaul on how all unwitnessed deaths were handled to ensure that the mistakes made during these cases wouldn't be repeated. The points stated that these areas of concern included atrocious lapses in the investigatory practice, breakdowns in communication, and incompetent or improper use of police practice that one judge would label a cover-up. This led to the murder going unsolved for years and allowing the
0: killer to strike again and again. Wow, this is going to be a story I can tell already.
1: In 1975, Bill and Bridget Harrison purchased 3635 Pitch Pine Crescent in Mississauga, Ontario, an airy six-bedroom modernist home with cathedral ceilings and high windows.
0: Pitch Pine. That's such a fun word to say. I, as soon as you said that, I'm like, Pitch Pine. I like China that That's rings. where I want to live. Yeah, I want to live on Pitch Pine Crescent. Well,
1: after what happened there, I'm not sure I want to live there.
0: That's true. Okay, I take <laughs> it back.
1: <laughs> it was... The area in Mississauga that was sought after though.
0: Oh yeah, with a name like Pitch Pine? Yeah. Yeah.
1: In the 1960s, Bill Harrison and Bridget Blackwell met at the Stratford Performing Arts Theater where Bill was working as a costume designer and Bridget was attending an apprenticeship for acting. Despite the racism they faced as a biracial couple during the 1960s, they forged forward together and were married in 1969 and the purchase of this home in the suburban area Mississauga was the next step of their dream.
0: Good for them. Yeah.
1: A place where they planned to live happily ever after. The house would become a gathering place for extended family and friends, a place to share laughs and receive heartfelt advice from the loving couple. So William, or Bill Harrison, was raised in Stratford, Ontario, by musicians. His father owned a beauty shop that had been passed down by great-grandparents that had immigrated to Canada through the Underground Railroad in the 1800s. He worked as a sales and management in the Sobeys grocery store chain, and was very successful. He was described as cool, steady, warm, and generous. He loved cars and gardening. Bridget Harrison was born in 1946, raised in London, Ontario, excelled at school, had a very successful career in education. She started out as a teacher and then finally ended up as a special assistant to the education minister. Over a thousand people would attend her funeral.
0: Oh, wow. They sound like a pretty remarkable couple.
1: And that's what most family and friends tell them, is that they were just that stand-up couple that helped out in the community and were always there for their extended family members. Bridget was described as fiery and passionate, warm and generous, stylish, and definitely adventurous. After a plague of fertility issues, Bill and Bridget had adopted six-month-old Caleb in 1973. Caleb Harrison was a difficult baby. As a child, he was described by family members as a little rascal dangerously curious and gave caregivers near heart attacks whenever they watched him he had difficulties in school because of Tourette syndrome the school difficulties and misbehaviors were an area of contention in the family Bridget was a teacher and it was difficult for her that her son was the one that was acting out yeah I can see that if that's your profession and then you're having the hardest time with it yeah Bill was often the peacekeeper between the two as an adult, Caleb had developed successful coping mechanisms. He was described as methodical and driven by routine, an attentive and involved father. There are reports that he had intermittent problems with alcohol and depression during his adult life. Once at a school, Caleb found success in the workforce, in shipping and receiving. Co-workers described him as witty and fun to be around. In 2000, Caleb, at age 27, met Melissa, a 19-year-old, at the My Favorite Doll Warehouse. What a great name, Melissa. It's an awesome name. Melissa Merritt grew up in a law enforcement family. So I want you to remember that as the story progresses, that her father and eventually her brother were police officers in Toronto.
0: Okay, this is going to get juicy, I can tell.
1: She had the girl next door appeal. She was blonde and fun to be around, but she was definitely family focused. At age 19, she had broken up with her high school boyfriend because he didn't want to start a family right away. So she's serious about this. Yeah. She wants to be a mother. She was described as an animal lover and an avid crafter. And actually, you can still see some YouTube videos with her making crafts.
0: Really? Like they're still online?
1: Yeah, they're online <laughs> and you can watch them. She's quite good. So what craft are we making when we're done this, <laughs> Melissa? <laughs> the two quickly became inseparable. Caleb would pick Melissa up for work every morning and they would share lunch every day together. To show his devotion to Melissa, when Melissa was fired from the doll warehouse, Caleb quit his job in solidarity. Wow, that's commitment. He was smitten. When Bill and Bridget express concern over the fast pace of the relationship, Caleb tells his parents about Melissa's unfortunate health condition that has caused one of her ovaries to be removed. She fears losing the other ovary before she can start a family. Caleb and Melissa want to settle down and have children while they can. Within three and a half years of meeting, Caleb and Melissa are married and settled down in Georgetown, just outside of Mississauga, and have two children. It doesn't take long for the honeymoon period to end, and the marriage becomes rocky, under the strain of family obligations and financial strains. That's tough when you're starting out a marriage with new babies. That new can be babies. hard on anyone. Yeah, and they're, well, Melissa's pretty young. Caleb's older, but with two children so quick together, the financial strain of that is huge. And Really, all reports say that neither one of them were very good at managing money. Okay. And how old is she at this time then? She would be 22. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty young for two kids. Yeah. In 2004, Melissa tells people that she has ovarian cancer, but later admits that she embellished this story. And the storytelling you're going to find is just a recurrent theme in this story. With Melissa. Yeah. She likes to tell stories. In an affidavit filed to the court by Caleb, he cites Melissa's storytelling as a strain on the marriage relationship and one reason that they have to separate. Yeah, I can see that. That would be tough. In June 2005, Melissa reports that Caleb attacked her. Caleb claims that it was self-defense, that she began attacking him, and that he eventually had to stick up for himself. He is found guilty of a domestic assault and spends three nights in jail and is put on probation. In July 2005, Caleb gets drunk at a party in Milton and drives home under the influence. He hits a taxi head-on, killing one person and injuring four others as well as himself. He is charged with drunk driving, causing death, and while awaiting trial is released on bail, he has to live with his parents as a condition of his bail from now on. Melissa believes that this is the break that she needs to prove that Caleb is an unfit father, but the judge orders visitation rights because Caleb is remorseful and has the support of his parents to help him care for the kids. Melissa is not happy with this arrangement. Weeks after the bail hearing, Melissa reports a home invasion and that she has been attacked, blaming Caleb for it. The police investigate... But Caleb is not considered a suspect because he is still recovering from the injuries and would not have been able to attack her in the way that she described because of the injuries he had sustained during the accident. So she said that he had climbed through a window and that he had ran at her and all this time he actually had a broken leg.
0: (laughs) So not likely. So this could be, well, probably is one of the many stories that Melissa likes to tell. That's right. So Melissa's telling all these stories. And remember that her family is in law enforcement. And she doesn't like the arrangement that the judge gave, so she figures if she can get him for something else, maybe then he wouldn't get visitation, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah. Melissa reports several other home invasions after the first, but the police find no merit in these reports and no charges are ever laid. So it wasn't that she tried it one time. She tried it several times to blame him for, like, kind of breaking into their house and and causing disturbances.
0: And what a waste of time for the police force. Like, they've got better things to do than come and check out your lies. That's right. In October 2005, Caleb uses Melissa's
1: repeated attempts to frame him as grounds to get a judge to grant shared custody rights to Caleb. From this point on, Caleb has the kids tuesdays thursdays and every other weekend as long as he abides by his bail terms which are living with his parents and having their help and he can't be drinking so in the winter of 2005 just shortly after a year after she separates from caleb melissa meets chris chris Vitor is 28 year old he was born on october 21st 1977 so he's a little bit older than her he was raised in an italian neighborhood in toronto he was a beauty school dropout can you hear the sound going on? I can. Beauty school dropout.
0: <laughs> that <laughs> totally in- took me there. <laughs> yeah.
1: He was a beauty school dropout and currently worked as a kitchen manager at Hooters and occasionally as a nightclub bouncer. Everybody reports that he was built like a linebacker. So he was like a heavy duty weightlifter.
0: So not the type of person you would expect to see in beauty school. No, not at all. And it's kind of interesting because Kayla's parents had a beauty shop, didn't they? Yeah. 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 But-
1: He was an interesting guy, but for all accounts, he was described as being doting and protective of Melissa, deeply loving towards her children, and he was filled with loathing towards Caleb Harrison. From his left elbow to his wrist, he had a tattoo that read, only the strong survive. Hmm, Is that foreshadowing? In 2006, Chris proposes on his birthday, and in April 2007, Melissa and Chris plan a wedding But it is hampered by the fact that Melissa is still actually married to Caleb. She states that she believed a divorce automatically happened after a two-year separation. And so she never bothered to file
0: paperwork. Hmm, So all this time, they've actually still been married. Yeah, they've just been separated. Okay. File that paperwork, you guys. (laughs)
1: File that paperwork. Chris and Melissa proceed anyway and have a wedding ceremony. And get this. This is where they have it at Fantasy Farm Banquet Hall. How fitting is that? (laughs) They have a wedding that actually isn't a wedding at Fantasy Farm Banquet Hall. Sounds legit to me. (laughs) Why
0: wouldn't they just go and file the paperwork and then have their wedding? Yeah,
1: I don't know. Maybe they were going to lose their deposit or something. Maybe. (laughs) They're not very good with money. And so they didn't want to lose what they had, I guess. So after their wedding, they set up residence in Mississauga. In spring 2007, shortly after the marriage, a judge grants 50-50 custody. Between Caleb and Melissa. Bill and Bridget enjoy taking active roles as grandparents. They help Caleb with the day to day care of the children and provide transportation because at this time, Caleb doesn't have his license back, obviously. Right. They had always wanted a big family and so they're happy with this arrangement. They're more than happy to help out with their grandkids. But Melissa is resentful of it. She hates their interaction with her children and she calls it meddling. Nice. So, from the spring to the winter of 2007 to th- 2008, five unsubstantiated claims of assault towards the children were made by Melissa against Caleb and his parents. There is no evidence for any of the claims, and police believe that the children's statements that she submits to the police were coached by
0: her. And that's terrible. When you start to get your kids involved and having them lie for you, Yeah, that kind of thing just gets me mad. Or she was trying to convince them that they were in
1: some way abusing them somehow. The kids. Yeah. In December 2008, Melissa refuses to honor the custody agreement and will not allow the children to be seen by Caleb or his family. By December 22nd, 2008, a judge orders Melissa to stop interfering. So it's this ongoing custody battle of going back and forth between judges and they're
0: constantly fighting over who gets the rights to these two children. Right. And I wonder if it's like, you know, the beginning you said how all she wanted was a family. You know, even broke up with her boyfriend because he didn't want to have kids right away at a young age. And so she doesn't want to share. She doesn't want to share her kids. And from all reports, she was super resentful of Bridget and Bill's
1: involvement in the children's life. It wasn't so much Caleb, although she didn't want Caleb to have them, but it was she was more irked by the grandparents having an active role. That's interesting. Because usually you would encourage that. Yeah, you'd want a big support system around your kids, right? But this was not the case with her. Um, in March 2009... Caleb is found guilty of drunk driving causing death and so this is where he's been on bail this whole time and now the sentencing has actually gone through and he has to spend 18 months in jail for it the judge orders that Caleb's custody rights be transferred to his parents so the kids can maintain their routine so that even though that dad goes to jail the kids still maintain their 50-50 between mom and grandma and grandpa's house because that's where Caleb was living which probably made Melissa even angrier absolutely. Again, she is not happy with this arrangement at all. At 9 p.m. on April 16th, 2009, Bridget returns home after a school board meeting and finds all the lights off in the house and Bill nowhere to be found. In her search to find him, she tries the downstairs powder room door and finds it locked. After opening the door with a pin, she finds Bill slumped against the far wall in the dark bathroom. She calls 911 and is asked to check his vitals while awaiting paramedics. The body is cold and stiff and she knows that he is dead.
0: What?
1: So she didn't hear anything. She just finds him dead. She finds him dead. So she returns home and he's in the bathroom, a locked bathroom with all the lights in the house off. So he was home alone and was in the bathroom. With
0: the door locked. With the door locked. Do you lock the door when you're at home alone? Not the bathroom door. Not the bathroom door (laughs) when I'm home alone. And do you often go pee in the dark? in the middle of the night maybe <laughs> but no not during the day it was unusual circumstances to be sure
1: so paramedics arrive and confirm the passing of bill at ten fifty on april 16th a coroner arrives and examines the body thin red marks across the throat are found but because of the unsuspicious attitude of the police at the time the coroner doesn't have any further concerns about that the police report reads death appears to be natural But because it's an unattended death, the body is sent for an autopsy. So it's only because that it's unattended. They don't feel it suspicious in any way. Which means they probably didn't do fingerprinting or check out the the scene. There is nothing done at the scene. So a different coroner performs an autopsy at the Credit Valley Hospital with the assumption that the death is not suspicious based on the police report. No police attend this postmortem and the coroner never saw photos of the scene. And because of this, the coroner makes some assumptions about how injuries that he find, how they occurred. And police state that they were not told about some of the injuries that the coroner had found later on. So that's, they kind of blame the coroner that, hey, you didn't tell us that some of the injuries that you found could have been suspicious. So they don't go back and investigate. Great. So it fell through the cracks. That's right. The death is not flagged as suspicious and so does not get passed on to a more experienced coroner. There's bruising on the forehead and the right side of the nose, an underlying hematoma on the front of the scalp with no skull fractures or brain trauma. So when the coroner was doing this investigation, he attributed this to a fall in the bathroom, possibly against a sharp object. Had he been able to see the actual crime scene photos and where the body was placed, there was actually no sharp objects around them. There were thin red neck abrasions, which they attributed to a necklace that was never found, and then a fractured sternum. And again, the coroner assumes that this is because there was CPR performed at the scene, but the police never reported CPR and CPR was never performed. So these guys just needed to talk to each other. That's right. There is no talking between the coroner or the police at the time. The coroner finds no evidence of natural death either. No anatomical or toxicological causes. The coroner rules the death as a result of acute cardiac arrhythmia which actually isn't a true cause of death in any stretch of the imagination. It's just something that could have happened that could have led to something causing the death, but it's a really odd coroner report. So it's just like a guess,
0: like it could have been this. Yeah. It's kind of like, well, I can't find any other cause. So maybe this happened kind of thing. And you would think there would be evidence if that did happen, but there wasn't, there was no anatomical changes in the heart structure at all. So
1: Mm -hmm. it was a really, really interesting coroner report to, to read. So sometime on April 16th or 17th, Melissa and Chris leave Mississauga without telling anyone amid mounting financial issues. On April 17th, when Bridget goes to get the children from school, she realizes that they're missing. She... Goes right to the police and tells them about the missing children. But the police won't pursue anything until a new family court order has been signed.
0: Oh, my goodness. Poor Bridget. So her yeah. husband just dies. She goes to get the kids and they're missing. That's And right. no one's going to help her.
1: That's right. So she goes to the school to actually let the kids know about their grandfather and finds out that they're missing. And even worse, because Caleb's in jail at this time, she actually has to attend her husband's funeral without her son or her grandchildren. So she bears
0: all of that by herself. Oh, I can't even imagine.
1: So she's dutiful though, and she follows through with the police request to get a new family court order signed. And on April 23rd, 2009, Bridget is granted sole custody of the two children. So it's with this report then on April 24th, that police learn that the children told a teacher that they were going on a long trip on the day that Bill died. Chris had called into work and said that he wouldn't be there that day either of the death and doesn't return to work after that day. So why was this not deemed suspicious? Because again, we'll get to it, but they don't talk to each other. Those two different departments, the ones that investigate missing children and the homicide department, or it didn't even go to the homicide department, the the coroner or the people that were investigating the death, they don't talk to each other at all. They don't draw the lines between the two. The police go to Melissa and Chris's house and find it empty and that they haven't been seen since April 16th. Yeah, they skipped town. That's right. April 26th, Bridget let the police know that she had received an email from Melissa explaining their disappearance by saying that she was getting away from threatening letters. Caleb received a similar letter in jail postmarked April 17th. So she sends Bridget and Caleb a letter saying that, well, we, we had to skip town really suddenly because they had received some threatening letters and she was fearful for her and the kids. And so that's why she had left town, but didn't leave any forwarding address. Did she say who the letters were from? No, just that she had received threatening letters. On May 6, 2009, an official abduction investigation was started. No connection was made between Bill's death and the disappearance of the children because of the separate investigative units. Later, investigators from both cases would report that had they only known about the other occurrence, then they would have investigated further. Yeah, that's
0: unfortunate.
1: Yeah. From April 16th to November 2009, Chris and Melissa had settled in Nova Scotia under aliases and started a new life there. Melissa's fourth child is born and eventually they're found by police when Chris
0: accidentally signs his real name to a rent check. Oh, my goodness. So if you're you're saying that you're innocent, why are you changing your name and hiding out? Well, because they had these threatening letters. Right. Oh, right. Right? And that's not a story. That's not another
1: one of Melissa's stories. That's not a story story that she's famous for. But, yeah, this is actually happening this time. When they find Melissa and Chris, they actually arrest Melissa for child abduction. And she's released on bail until the hearing can take place. So they're brought back to Mississauga. And the children then return to Bridget's care. Okay. Caleb gets released early from prison because of good behavior, and it doesn't take long for Melissa to fall into old patterns. On April 10th, 2010, Melissa and Chris go to Caleb's residence to deliver photos and letters to the children because there actually is a restraining order at this time to keep them away from the children because she's up on abduction charges. Right. She's their kidnapper. That's right. So she's not allowed around them, but they break it all the time. Melissa stays in the car a block away because this is a violation of her bail. Bridget reports the breach to police and Melissa is arrested for breach of bail terms and spends three days in jail. This enrages both Melissa and Chris who feel that this is unfair treatment that they're not being allowed to see their children.
0: So they're just not taking any responsibility for their actions at all. Not at all. No. She continually
1: breaches her bail. Now, I was trying to understand it from a mother's perspective. If you're told that you have to stay away
0: from your children... I'm not sure bail terms would keep me away either. Yeah, that would be a tough one. But then I would also think if I'm going to mess this up, then I'm going to ruin my chances of getting yeah. them back. Well, you're playing the long, the long game, right? Right. Of like,
1: if I just wait it out now, then at least this this is going to get me back to them. And maybe she just didn't have that forethought. Or maybe it was because she believed that she had some extra protection because her family was in law enforcement. That nobody was actually going to charge her. That's true, too. Right? Like, why else would you be so brazen about breaking your terms of bail so often? Right.
0: That makes sense that daddy's gonna help her, big brother's gonna help her. That's right. Well, and they've already gotten away with murder. That's true. This is a year later, and nobody has even blinked an eye about Bill's death. Yeah, so I can see how that would increase your confidence. Yeah. Bridget
1: has several diary entries during this time concerning the interactions that she had with both Melissa and Chris. She writes several things about the language that they use with her, what they call her, and it's not pleasant. So they're, they're quite abusive towards her because they view her as being the reason why they don't have their kids. On April 19th, while preparing a written statement for Melissa's abduction trial, Bridget writes, Some people believe in coincidences, some do not. Publicly casting suspicion on the timing of her husband's death and the disappearance of her grandchildren with Melissa and Chris. So she actually makes like a post about like, this isn't a coincidence. People need to wake up and
0: she has suspicions about it. Yeah. And how come Bridget's on the right track and she's not in law enforcement and the law enforcement is not putting Just those things together. Kind of put it missing it all. Yeah. Poor Bridget. <laughs> yeah. On April 21st, one day before the
1: abduction hearing, Caleb's eight-year-old son comes home to find Bridget laying dead at the bottom of the stairs. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Yes. He runs to a neighbor's house for help, and an ambulance is called. Her body is positioned, laying face up with her arms down by her side, her head resting on the first step.
0: How horrific for this little boy to come home from school. He's lost grandpa, and now he finds grandma. And this is his main caregiver at this time, right? Oh, my goodness. Dad's been
1: in jail. At this time, Caleb is at the house, but Bridget is their main caregiver. At 4.11 p.m., a constable marked in a notebook, female, VSA, so vital signs absent, fell downstairs, question mark. So that's what's written in in his report. And it makes me question if, if it was this note that started the thought that no foul play was suspected. It was the presumption of an accidental death. I have no words. I have no words. (laughs) The coroner is again called to the scene for a second time. So the same house, second time. They find abrasions and bruising on the neck and chin and rules the death suspicious. So they're like, "Okay, okay, wait a minute. This coroner's like, I think something's up. This means that Bridget's body will go downtown to a more experienced coroner for a forensic autopsy, which is a little bit different than your regular autopsy. So different than the one that Bill's body had. Okay. So more extensive. That's right. So the forensic pathologist finds injuries, abrasions, and bruising to the front of the neck and petechiae hemorrhaging in the skin and the eyes. Dissection showed bleeding into the muscles of the neck and lower jaw and fractures of the cartilage surrounding the voice box, suggesting neck compression. The coroner also found broken bones at the back of the neck, several small rib fractures, and bruising on the arms and legs, suggesting a fall. Preliminary emails from the first coroner from the night of Bridget's death state potential criminal suspicious activity and forwarded on to the chief coroner. So the typical injuries and strangulation, skin injuries at the front of the neck, petechiae, neck strap muscle hemorrhaging, Bridget had them all.
0: That's what it sounded like to me. Like she was strangled and then shoved down the stairs.
1: Yeah. She had all of these injuries. The contrast to the findings was confusing But the chief forensic pathologist was concerned about the similarities between the two deaths that had occurred at the same residence and declared the death suspicious. So it wasn't so much that she had the markings on her autopsy of strangulation, but he was like, wait a minute, two people here have died and they both had kind of similar markings on their body. And so that's why he rules her death suspicious. But
0: they didn't go back and and change Bill's death.
1: He actually recommends that they exhume the body, but he had been cremated. So this is just the coroner's report, though. Okay. So because the death was ruled as suspicious, the homicide department was responsible for making the decision to investigate further. Had it been ruled a homicide or a possible homicide, then it would have been an obligation to investigate further. So the homicide department relied on the preliminary investigation that had been carried out by the local police department. So they were reviewing those notes of the, the officers on scene at the time. They visited the crime scene for approximately 40 minutes, and this is what was stated in theirs. All in all, the scene has nothing there to indicate any type of foul play or struggle. In 40 minutes, they were able to make that conclusion. Yeah. Based on that report, the homicide department chose not to pursue the case.
0: Oh, no! Yeah. This is frustrating, because clearly anyone on the outside looking in... Well, and the timing, right? Both times
1: that these people died were right before custody hearings.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah.
1: Whole picture, people, whole picture. Based on the report that the homicide department chooses not to pursue the case, the local police continue the case for about another two weeks. Some of their findings were that the paper boy remembers three times that he saw a blue van parked outside of the house. The blue van was very similar to the one Melissa has. They questioned Caleb because of his rocky relationship with his mother and that's actually where they first look. So when the police are investigating or doing their preliminary investigation, they think he's done it because he's just out of jail. They have this rocky relationship with him always being a disappointment to her. And so they think that he's killed his mother. He has a solid alibi though. Very clearly he was at work all day and several people put him there. So his alibi is solid. And that's kind of where
0: the investigation kind of petered out. It was like, oh, Caleb didn't do it. So I guess nobody did. Oh, that's frustrating. And what would Caleb really have for motive? His mom is there helping him out. Yeah. And that's pretty much the money train for him, right? That's true too. Yeah. They do question
1: both Melissa and Chris about their whereabouts the day that Bridget died because Caleb points them in their direction. He says, look, if you're looking for somebody that might have done this, I would check out Melissa and Chris. Because she's crazy. Yeah. She's crazy. <laughs>
0: Girls can be dirtbags too, yes, just so absolutely. you know. We're all about equality over here.
1: <laughs> so they check out both of their alibis, but the police don't dig
0: too deeply. And again, this makes me question, why did the police not dig too deeply? So do you think her family had any influence on that? Like with her dad and her brother being a police officer? Were they buddy-buddy with these officers that were investigating? It's hard to say,
1: right? They wasn't necessarily the same department that they worked for. And you would think that
0: if your family member was being investigated, that you wouldn't be allowed on that case anyway or anywhere near it. So you wouldn't be able to pull strings, but... But if you were buddies with one of the other officers, maybe. Yeah, who knows what happens. We're not accusing, but it's a little suspicious. It is suspicious,
1: and... I think it's even more suspicious because they just keep falling through the cracks, right? Melissa says, oh, I was working at home all day um, at my daycare. And Chris said that he visited Sobies, which was actually confirmed on a video. He visited from 9.39 to 9.51 and then again at 2.52 to 2.59. So he made sure he was seen on a videotape between those times. He well, said that's he, convenient. Yeah. He ran some other errands and he visited Melissa, Melissa's grandmother, Who confirmed that he visited on April 21st, but she didn't know what time he visited. She couldn't
0: remember. So this is happening in April again, because the first murder was in April. It was actually just a little over a year. Yeah, almost exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because it was April like 16th, 17th, wasn't it? And now it's April 21st, the following year. Yeah, it was just a little over a year. Okay.
1: Melissa's father, a retired detective for Toronto, is upset by the police questioning his daughter, and he encourages her not to answer any more questions. So Melissa refuses to answer questions after one interview on May 5th, where she cast out onto Caleb. So she's saying, you know, this is who you want to check out. So they're, they're kind of backslinging back and forth between who actually did it. Police officers on the case soon move on to different positions or to different cases. The coroner's report on July 10th discussed mechanism of two possible modes of injury and cited cause of death as undetermined and no evidence of foul play was discovered. Hmm. So I found this really odd because this is my thing, right? This is where I actually wanted to go with my schooling was like forensic pathology. And it's actually police that determine foul play. It's not your coroner. So I found it odd that the coroner was determining no evidence of foul play because that's something that you determine at a scene. Right. Right. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Usually there's a general rule that if your pathologist can't figure out what went on, then you go back to the crime scene. And you give them more information, right, about what's going on. That never happened here. Bill's sister, Elizabeth, remembers being told by one of the police officers that if the family had suspicions,
0: that they needed to provide the police with proof. Isn't that crazy? So Caleb's family had to yeah. supply.
1: That's right. So the proof. Harrison family had to
0: provide proof to the police to let like that. That there was foul play going that's on, right. something was happening. That's right. Wow. Which is so odd, right? That is odd. Because um, normally wouldn't the police not want you to get involved. Like let us do our job. That's right. Yeah. Not that's you right. you figure it out and if you get a good enough theory, then maybe we'll look into let it. Let us know. Yeah. Right?
1: No, that's not how it's work. it's usually the police
0: that provide the proof, right? Right. That they're doing the
1: investigation. Yeah.
0: That's how it's Yeah.
1: September second, two thousand and ten. The last note on the case says After extensive investigation into the matter, there has been no evidence to suggest Harrison was the victim of foul play or any other criminal act. The coroner has concluded that the cause of death in this matter is asphyxia, but the mechanism of death is unknown. The last time anyone had logged any hours on the case was April 29th.
0: Okay, this is crazy.
1: So she died of asphyxia, but they don't know how she did it.
0: And no foul play.
1: No foul play. Because that just happens randomly. You fall down the stairs and you stop breathing. Yeah. Yeah. There was no clear lead on the case. No case manager had been assigned. And it had changed hands multiple times. So again, it just kind of fell through the cracks. Following Bridget's death, Melissa, Chris, and their four children moved to a farmhouse in Stratford that later burned down two years later. Oh, yikes. Yeah. The family returned to Mississauga after that. And during this time period, Caleb had maintained sole custody. he's caring for his kids by himself without too much interference from melissa and chris Good, they're doing their own thing prior to the beginning of summer in 2013 though caleb agrees to share custody with melissa every other weekend it's a temporary arrangement that's supposed to end on august 24th so he is kind of he's trying to be fair right the kids the kids thinking of the kids yeah, let them see their mom that's right It was also reported during that time that Caleb might have been struggling with everything that had happened. So that he might have been a little bit depressed and struggling to take care of them and was okay with having someone else to share the responsibilities. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. On July 10th, so not too far into the summer... Melissa files an application for shared custody, so she wants it down in writing. What she wants is the current arrangement to remain in place, but on the application, she states that she has tried to make several arrangements with Caleb, but he has refused to consider the best interest of his children.
0: So she's throwing him under the bus. He's giving her this little olive branch, and she's taking it and whipping him with it. That's right. Nice. Okay, are you ready for these dates, right? Okay. So August 22nd, Caleb coaches his
1: daughter's Little League team, And then heads home. So it was a time that the kids were with their mom. The children are with Melissa and Chris for the evening. After the game, they take the kids out to Pita Pit for dinner. A Walmart is located next door and Chris makes a quick side trip while the children wait in the car. August 22nd at 11pm, Caleb calls his girlfriend and this is the last person that will talk to him alive. Oh no. On August 23rd, one day before the temporary custody agreement was to end the housekeeper is interrupted cleaning by a man from Caleb's work looking for him because he did not show up to work. So this is like super out of the norm for Caleb, who is super routine driven that he didn't show up for work. And it's so out of the norm that his coworker actually comes to the house. He shows up at the door and the housekeeper is like, well, I've been here cleaning for like two hours. I haven't seen him like, and she never cleaned his bedroom. So she had never went up in there. But they go upstairs together and they find Caleb dead in bed. Oh! Caleb is tucked into his chin and still has his eye mask
0: on. What? Yeah. And that housekeeper, like, she's been cleaning in there for two hours and did not know that Caleb was dead upstairs. That's right. 911 is called
1: and one of the paramedics to arrive on the scene is the same one that attended Bridget's death and has this huge sense of deja vu. like... I have been here before. Yeah,
0: no kidding. Yeah. Third
1: time's the charm. The paramedics find bruising and abrasions on the neck, swollen knuckles, and two deep scratches on the chest, and abrasions by the back by the armpit. And they're immediately suspicious, so they call in the police. Yeah, he uh, probably
0: fought back. That's right.
1: The constable that arrives has the same sense of deja vu when she arrives on the scene to take photos. I have been in this house before. I have been through the... Like, I've taken... These scene photos again. So Caleb's autopsy reveals a broken high-eyed bone, damage to the cartilage around the voice box, and is ruled strangulation. And the homicide squad is called to investigate. And did they have deja vu when they came in there? No, because they never went to the other one, right? They just went off the reports of the other police station. But this time we we get the homicide squad called in and there's actually an investigation done. So Melissa and Chris are identified as suspects early on in the investigation. On August 27, 2013, Melissa and Chris provide their alibis. They were home in bed. They had been awakened by their children at 4 and 6 a.m. But really that's their alibi is that they were home in bed. Mm -hmm. They're put under surveillance at this time. Within a week of Caleb's death, detectives collect Melissa's cell phone, the GPS tracker from their vehicle, and cast off DNA in the garbage bags outside of their house. There, in the garbage, they find black and white Velcro shoes in a Walmart bag and black latex gloves. Police find bank records for the purchase of the shoes at 9:30 p.m. on the night before Caleb's murder at the local Walmart.
0: When they were at the Pita Pit feeding right. their kids, when they had, the I'll kids just scoot over to Walmart and get some of our supplies that we're going to need to to kill your father, to murder their dad. Said. Nice, right? Yeah. And you know what's kind of like almost laughable to me is that after they kill him, they tuck him into bed and put his eye mask on. Like, they won't notice anything else. This will just make it look like he was sleeping and just died in his sleep. Yeah. So awful. It's bizarre. Melissa immediately
1: applies for sole custody and is granted. What? Yeah. So this is what she's been after this whole time. The reason she uses is because it's coming September and I need to get the kids registered in school. And so they're under investigation for murder, but actually there's no charges laid. They're just being investigated. This
0: is crazy. Yeah. This is so frustrating.
1: Yeah. So she gets sole custody of her kids. On September 9th, the police secure a warrant for Melissa's cell phone and they found a 28 page document downloaded onto it about the type of security lock that's on the Harrison home. And it was last opened on July, 2013. So she downloaded like the manual type of a thing to how to open their security lock. Yeah. Within a week of being granted sole custody, Melissa and Chris take the six children and move to the East Coast. They've done this before. Yeah. They're skipping town. Yeah. Did they get new names because they feel threatened? It was crazy. So police continue to investigate the couple's home the same day as the phone was secured. They find when they get there that it's empty and a lot of stuff is left behind. Because they left quick. They left quick. They find out that the couple had signed a one-year lease three weeks before that and then just took off. The black gloves and shoes that were found in the garbage have Caleb's DNA on the outside of the gloves and Chris's DNA on the inside of the gloves. They found two laptops and USB devices with incriminating web searches on them. And police don't know which one of the two did the web searches, but they know that this is what was, it was a shared computer and this is the later evidence that was thrown out. Okay, that's frustrating. So I'm going to read you some of the searches that they found that weren't allowed. How long until someone dies from being choked? And that was on April 1st, 2010. 20 days before Bridget's death. How to get through a locked patio door. Can you taste rat poison? Oh my. Bill Harrison, August 6th, 2010. Repeated searches for... Gross pictures of dead bodies, dead body pictures, pictures of dead bodies in April 2010. Bridget Harrison, two days after her death. Bridget Harrison, six days after her death. If a grandparent has custody of a child and they die, which of the parents gets the kids? So this is two months before Bridget's death. Easy ways to kill and get away with it. Oh my gosh.
0: I want to know what comes up on that search.
1: (laughs) How do you know if your home phone is being tapped? How to extract poison from plants? How to make poison liquid? Oh my goodness. So these are all the things that are found on their computer.
0: And not able to use in court. That's right.
1: Police are suspicious of the two, obviously. And they set up an intricate game with a warrant. So this time they're being very, very careful. They have a warrant. But what they do is they start surveillance on the couple in Nova Scotia. So remember how I said their house had burnt down? Right. They had set up a GoFundMe page after that house burned down. It was still active. And so the police posed as a contributor to their GoFundMe page. Okay, And they set it up so that um, the offer was made to help them. But then Melissa had to contact that person. So because she contacted them, it was well within the oh. warrant search. So police were a little bit tricky. They finally figured out how to, how to work them. Smart. That's right. They had left a lot of their belongings behind when they moved to Nova Scotia. They arranged through this GoFundMe page and this fake account that people were helping them with, that they would arrange to have their belongings sent to them in Nova Scotia as a charitable act. The belongings that they sent, they hid a whole bunch of wiretaps in.
0: Ooh, smart. I like it. Tricky,
1: tricky, right? I thought that was pretty clever. So... Once they received their belongings in Nova Scotia, police were monitoring their conversations all of the time because they had put wiretaps in all of their belongings. January 1st, 2014, they recorded the following conversation. So Melissa says, have you realized that the underlying fact of the matter is, is that you killed Caleb? And Chris says, I know. So they have definite proof now that they've done it
0: what a weird conversation too like after the fact uh, yeah i don't realized? know how that comes well,
1: yeah, yeah it just comes up in everyday conversation right, right. in january at italy cross nova scotia melissa and chris are arrested and charged with first degree murders of caleb and Bridget. Chris has to be cuffed with leg irons because regular handcuffs won't fit him. He is a big guy.
0: Oh yeah, because he was this big bodybuilder, body beauty school dropout. That's guy. right.
1: After 13 hours of interviewing, Chris confesses, saying that he believed it would help Melissa get full custody of the kids, so that he confesses saying, "Yep, I've killed Caleb and Bridget, and I did it because we wanted full custody."
0: He but said he's trying to save her. He's fallen on the sword at this point.
1: Yeah, he said Melissa had nothing to do with it. Yeah, right. He detailed each murder. Bridget, he knocked on the door and said he had something to give to the kids. And when she refused to let him in, he pushed his way in. He hit Bridget a couple of times and then squeezed her neck until she stopped breathing. So for Caleb, he says he used his son's keys to enter the house late at night, wearing black gloves and newly bought shoes and a hoodie with a baseball bat hidden in the sleeve. He found the bedroom because of the noise of the fan and struck Caleb's chest with a bat. Caleb struggled, but Chris threw him onto a bookcase and then strangled him. He placed him back in bed and tucked him in. Oh my goodness. January 31st at 10 p.m., police put Melissa and Chris in a room at a Halifax airport that they have previously tapped. The couple think they're alone. Chris says he's taking the rap and that she should say that she didn't know anything. Melissa takes exception to Chris's parents likening her to Carla Homoka.
0: That's a whole nother
1: horror story. That is a whole nother horror story. The trial begins on September 27, 2017. Melissa pleads not guilty to all charges, presenting a case in which she knew nothing about Chris's actions. So she throws him under the bus. Chris pleads guilty to Caleb's death, but not Bridget's. He says he only confessed to save his wife and that he really had nothing to do with it. He said the confession was coerced. Or, he's changing the story. He's changing
0: his story. They both deny anything to do with Bill's death. That was ruled as natural. Bill's that's death. right. Yeah. There's no suspicion at all. So they're thinking, let's just not say anything about it and yeah. we'll get away with it.
1: Yeah. Which makes you think that, again, do they have some inside information on what information they actually have on Bill's death? Because they know they can't go back and exhume the body. They know that it's very limited evidence and so why cop to something if you know you can't prove it right right after three months of trial and four days of deliberation the jury finds chris guilty of bridget and caleb's death but not guilty for bill's death melissa was found guilty for caleb's death and a mistrial is declared for bridget's death because the jury couldn't reach a verdict i'm not really sure if justice was served there but no i don't think so yeah so Chris and Melissa are each sentenced to automatic life terms without parole for 25 years. And currently they're both appealing that. And just a little like, where are they now? Melissa got married to a fellow inmate at the Grand Valley Institution for Women. What? The National Post reports that after the ceremony, the happy couple headed to the institution's
0: PFE Private Family Visit Trailer. Oh my goodness. Because now she's not married because Caleb's dead. Yeah. Yeah, so she's free so to she actually get, to get married. And not at the fantasy farm this time. Yeah. Real. For reals. For realsies. That's
1: right. <laughs> is that not crazy, though? You destroy a whole family and you just get to continue on with yours. You get to get yeah. married and you get to do all, like, it just seems so bizarre to me. It's unjust. It is. Chris is doing time at the Beaver Creek Penitentiary and actually has a dating site up. What? Yes. He's seeking companionship on the Canadian CanadianInmatesConnection.com. His profile states, I am on this site to find someone I can connect with. Someone smart and mature with a youthful side. Someone with a great sense of humor and doesn't mind being silly and having fun. Someone who enjoys working out and staying healthy. Someone who shares my interest. They say opposites attract, but in my experience, they don't last. I'm not looking for anyone controlling me. I've been there, done that. Threw away the T-shirt. Oh my gosh, that's his dating profile. So he's
0: looking for someone with similar interests. Does that include murdering people while yeah. they sleep? Maybe strangling old women. Isn't that so crazy? Yuck. Yeah. it just it floors me that that gets to still happen. Yeah, in prison. Why are yeah. you allowed to have a dating app and site and access to yeah. all that in prison? So crazy. The Harrison
1: family pushed for an investigation into the police shortfalls of this case and were eventually rewarded with an internal review of the Peel Regional Police Division. They released a lengthy report on the failings of the police to investigate the first deaths. Fourteen immediate changes were implemented into the police processing. Okay, so at least something good came of it. But you have to wonder, it's the incompetence of the police that leads to two murders that could have been prevented.
0: Right. If the first one had been. That's right. If the first one had been
1: investigated. Two officers or two investigators from the cases have actually come forward and accepted responsibility. For some of the problems that the investigation faced okay so there are some people that are saying yeah this this shouldn't have happened a future investigation into the peel police force would reveal incompetency perjury fabricated evidence obstructing justice and cover-ups oh wow so this wasn't the only case or these these weren't the only cases that they were struggling with at the time hmm. so stuff was going down at the police yep. force that's it that's what i have for today in the crazy murders of three people and two of them could have been prevented.
0: Yeah, that's so sad. Yeah. And crazy. It was like, rather there's been there's a murderer on the loose yeah. or that house is haunted. Because something ain't right. Nobody wants to live in that house now. <laughs> no. I'm so glad we don't have to live there. I'm the biggest scaredy cat. She really is. She's not lying, you guys.
1: I've just was, barely
0: gotten her to watch scary movies with me. <laughs> I would never be able to sleep again. <laughs>
1: Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. And let us know what
0: you think. Yeah, go check out our Facebook and our Instagram pages.
1: We're always curious to hear what our listeners are thinking. And I'm wondering if you guys think, did Chris and
0: Melissa, were they responsible for Bill's death? I do. But I am curious to see if any of you don't think that.
1: We hope you'll join us next week when Christy digs into another true crime story.
0: (laughs) This next one's a doozy, so make sure that you join us. Thanks a lot and see you next time. See ya.
1: We hope you'll join us next week when Christy digs deep into another crew, another crewy time.
0: story. <laughs> There's a no YouTuber and her thing is called crew tri- Crew tribe. <laughs> crew Crime, Crew tribe. Crew tribe. tribe. Yep. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so Bill Harrison was raised in Strathmore. Not Strathmore. Strathmore. Not, not Strathmore cause he's <laughs> in Ontario, not in <laughs> Alberta. <laughs> <laughs> the, tip the tongue no teeth the lips. well <laughs> it's cool wait i'm supposed to say something <laughs> else there. i was saying like
0: that for <laughs> <You're laughs>
1: sure i'm supposed to say something <laughs> an alternative an alternative father
0: <laughs> let's dig into that a little bit more that's what i had too no
1: It's painful.
0: Okay. Yep, I think so.
1: Well, we hope you'll join us next week when Christy goes in deep to another jerk story. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I will.
0: Deep. I'm going deep, you Down guys. Down deep. <laughs> this next one's a doozy, so make sure that you join us.